couple of years ago, there was a, a believer, not from this church, but living elsewhere. He said to me, I don't really like the Psalms. And I stood there aghast and waited for an explanation. He didn't have one. He just says, I don't really get them. I don't like them. And I thought, well, he's very young. Just wait. You'll see. Just wait. Let some time pass. Let some affliction come. Let some grief ensue. You think you don't like the Psalms now. Just wait. I'm convinced, actually, that the longer we follow Christ, the more meaningful the Psalms become, not less. The more meaningful, the more hope-giving. And in the last several weeks together, Psalms in a row have been very concerned with the idea of approaching God and being in His presence. Lord willing, the longer we are disciples of Christ Jesus, that will be our heart's desire as well. That we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what we want. We want this, and several psalms in a row have been occupied with approaching God in His presence. Let's give you an example here. In Psalm 23, verse 6, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 24, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell in His holy place? Psalm 25, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and I take refuge in You. In Psalm 26, I love the habitation of Your house, the place where Your glory dwells. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So these psalms in a row are showing us a theme in the heart of the psalmist, and that is that his life now and future would be all unto God and that it would be characterized by communion with God. Communion with God that is like wholeness of life. Life is not whole right now, but it will be. Wholeness of life, that's what the psalmist longs for. Peace in the soul, joy in the heart, thanksgiving on his tongue. He he wants this, and even now, to glimpse it in following Christ. Psalm 28 continues the theme. In verse 2, He prays for God to hear his plea for mercy with his outstretched hands toward his most holy sanctuary. The psalmist wants God. God has made us that he might give to us himself. There's nothing greater than God for God to give. God has made us that he might give to us himself. The psalmist knows he falls short in his own heart. Psalms have already shown us in our study of book one that he has his own sin and guilt. He needs forgiveness of sins. He has pardon that he longs for, that he hopes will never be reversed. He needs to be justified. That's the word we can use. He knows he needs to be justified in God's sight. He has a deep need for righteousness before the God who is holy He needs the rescuing grace of God, therefore, to redeem him, to restore him, to take him to glory. The psalmist longs for the presence of God, but he knows that he himself is inadequate of his own merit to just approach the Lord. For the Old Testament saints, the tabernacle and later the temple symbolized 
The presence of God among sinners. In these institutional places and sacrificial system, God had drawn near. He had brought His glory near to His people. And the whole system approaching God foreshadowed what Jesus would fulfill and accomplish upon the cross. The Old Testament people are concerned about the way to God, that they might approach God and dwell in His presence in the house of the Lord. And then Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So all that that tabernacle and temple had rightly had a role to serve and point toward now was fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. That Jesus is the way to God. He is the tabernacle of God made flesh. Charles Spurgeon says, when Jesus opened the Holy of Holies, He didn't make a little slit. But the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom so that the biggest sinner that ever lived might come to the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. That's what Jesus has done. Spurgeon says, Oh, the amazing mercy of God. And the hope of the psalmist is in the divine mercy of their Maker. What else could rescue them? Only mercy. What is it that can bring life to their soul? Only mercy. What is it that will strengthen their hearts and fortify their minds in face of all the confusion and temptation of life? Only divine mercy will do. So, the plea of the psalmist and our heart's plea needs to be for God to have mercy upon us. And in verses 1 and 2, here's his prayer. Specifically here, it's a call for God to hear me. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Verses 1 and 2 are a prayer for the psalmist, from the psalmist, that God hear his cry. What is his cry? Verse 2, help and mercy. The shortest prayer, Lord help is a biblical prayer, perhaps the most prayed kind of prayer of all the prayers in all the ages. Lord, help. Lord, I need your strength. Lord, be merciful. The psalmist knows where to go. To you I call, he says to the Lord. So in that day of trouble, in that day of great great distress and affliction, to whom shall we turn? The answer is always, let us turn to the Lord. You say, well, even after the way my life has been going, and even after all that I've done, you're telling me I need to turn to the Lord? The answer is always yes. Turn to the Lord. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. And then he calls God, my rock. My rock. An image, a metaphor here, of faithfulness. Dependability. That's what a rock is. Strong and faithful. An image of elevation, you build fortresses in rock. So these enemies that would seek to overcome David and the snares that were around him, you know what David needs? He needs a rock that's not going to go anywhere. He needs the kind of stability and solid ground that the world and all that it might offer to you can never provide. He says, you God, you're my rock. So don't be deaf to me. That, That phrase is saying, Lord, don't turn your ear. 
Don't act like you can't hear me, okay? Lord, I'm calling to you, so don't be as one that might be afflicted with this disability in the image bearer's lives that we might know where you can speak to someone and they can't hear you. He says, oh God, don't treat me that way. Hear my cry. Listen to me, oh God. The psalmist in verse 1 ends this verse contrasting himself. He wants to be found among the righteous. Those who know God, are heard by God, loved by God, delivered by God. And he says, Lord, if you don't hear me, then it may mean something else. I might become like those then that go down to the pit. He's contrasting his life with what would be later described in chapter 28 here in this psalm as the wicked The unrighteous are those who go down to the pit. It's not just a picture of physical death. It's a picture of spiritual judgment. To descend to the pit is this fearful situation of going to Sheol without hope. He says, Lord, I need you to hear me. I need you to hear my cry to you, lest I be treated as the wicked. And they die without hope. They are those who've turned from you. So Lord, don't turn from me because I am turning to you. Hear me, O God. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. In verses 1 and 2, we don't know the details of David's situation. We also recognize that throughout the Psalms, we don't always need to know the details of David's situation. The power and glory of the Psalms is their transcendent relevance and application. That beyond the specific historical details of David's life, which are occasionally given to us, we don't need all the details for the psalm to be encouraging to us. We find ourselves in our own distresses and griefs. We find ourselves in our own temptations and snares. Surrounded by conditions of life that we long for God to bring rescue. So he says, I'm pleading for mercy. I need you to hear me, O God. You're my rock. So when I cry to you for help... Hear me when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. He has in view there the dwelling place where God's presence symbolized there among the sinners of the age with tabernacle and later the temple. It was in Jerusalem. Solomon would build the temple. He would even say in 1 Kings 8 that if people would pray toward the temple, God would hear them. Of course, this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we look to Christ, our mediator and intercessor. We don't think that if we turned our bodies and eyes toward a particular facility or direction, north, south, east, or west, that God's hearing increases. Rather, this is to symbolize the posture of their life. Turn to God. And this is a way of saying, do it literally. Like if the temple is that way, David is saying, then I've got my hands stretched out that way. Where you are, God. I just want to look to you, so don't turn from me. When I cry to you for help. This is the prayer of the psalmist. Help and mercy. There's something so normal and human about that. Every person in this room can resonate with the desire that God bring them help and mercy in their time of need. David is in such a time. But he doesn't want to be treated like the wicked. The wicked, they they rebuff the commands of God. They live in rebellion against God. And they do not look to God as refuge, rock, and help. So if God turns from the psalmist, the psalmist would be saying, well, then I must be treated like those going down to the pit. 
But Lord, Lord, it's as if the psalmist says, Lord, I know that you distinguish who are your people. You know us. You know who belongs to you. You hear your people. So he says in verses 3 through 5, don't treat me like the wicked. Verses 3 through 5 is a plea for judgment on the wicked and the psalm must not be found among them. Verses 3 through 5, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. We can assume something in David's understanding about the wicked. Here's one of the things we can affirm. David assumes that the end for the wicked will be different for the end of the righteous. They are not the same. The end of the wicked and the end of the righteous are not the same. So he says, don't drag me off with them because what is in store for them down their path, it must be destruction, therefore. He talks in verses 4 and 5 about that. At the end of verse 5, God's going to tear them down and build them up no more. So he says, Lord, let that not be what is for me. I am yours, Lord. I'm calling to you for mercy. I'm looking to you for help. You're my rock. You're my refuge. So when judgment comes for the wicked, don't take me with them. Don't drag me off with the wicked. It's this picture, I think, of uh, being conquered. You have the victor and the enemy that has been vanquished. And the victor, you can just imagine uh, the uh, taking away of the captives who have sought to destroy and resist not just Yahweh, but in their vileness and in their wickedness that they have committed, they are dragged away for punishment, for judgment. He says, Lord, when that day comes, don't drag me off with the wicked. They are workers of evil. Look how he describes them in verse 3. What are they like outwardly and inwardly? They're anti-God. That's what they're like. First of all, they work evil. That's the application of their hands and their plans. What is it that they think about? What is it that they aim to do and they try to execute in real life and real time and space? Evil. That's what they want. That's their priority. That's what they're committed to. They're workers of evil. He says, that's the wicked. Don't drag me off with them. My future will be different from the wicked. They're the wicked who not just work outward evil, they inwardly plot and are conniving and so they deceive those around them. The end of verse 3 describes these wicked as those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. So they seem to be one thing that they're really not. They got these relationships horizontally. And, uh, you know, from the words that the people say, it seems like everything's fine. They're trying to keep things on the up and up. Doesn't look very alarming. They seem to be speaking peace. But inwardly, if you could see, if you could apply the spiritual instruments to their heart, evil is being plotted there against their neighbor. So outwardly, they speak peace. Evil is in their hearts. The neighbor may not see the heart, but God does. He is saying what he is saying in verse 3, assuming that God knows the hearts of people. Lord, you know their hearts. They're workers of evil. Evil is in their hearts. So in verse 4, be just. Be just. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Verse 4 is the psalmist's cry for God's justice. Lord, you're righteous, you're holy, so bring justice. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. We have to read verse 4 in light of verse 3, don't we? They're workers of evil in verse 3. So giving to them according to their work is judgment in light of what they've sown. Sowing and reaping. Give to them according to their work. 
according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. They worked evil, evil is in their hearts. Render them then their due reward in verse 4. Here is a key biblical doctrine taught here by the psalmist in his cry to God. Sin deserves judgment. This is so basic, right? This is Christianity 101. These are doctrinal basics taught in the Old and New Testaments that testify together to this truth that the wages of sin is death. Paul teaches it in the New Testament. The psalmist believed it in the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. So the future for the wicked and the future for the people of God are not the same. So he prays for God to be just. He prays for the justice of God to be applied. This key doctrinal truth. Sin deserves judgment. We do not want God to treat us according to the work of our hands and hearts. We would never want to pray to God, Oh Lord, as you look within me, treat me according to my deeds and hearts. You'd pray that if you're spiritually delusional. But not if we had an accurate reflection and clarity upon the state of our heart. The psalmist prays what Paul acknowledges in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've got to read all the verse. Because the bad news is followed by the most glorious of good news for sinners to embrace. Yes, the wages of sin is death. So therefore, there is no deliverance by our own deeds. But there is someone else's deeds on our behalf that has been worked for us. It is the works of Christ. I heard a preacher say one time, yeah, we're saved by works. Jesus' works, (laughs) not ours. Okay, it's the works of Jesus. It's his mighty deed on the cross, his redeeming sacrifice. And to that we say amen. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we need is righteousness from God counted to us. And the news of the gospel is flee to Christ because in Christ Jesus we have a righteousness that is counted to us by faith. Look to Christ and receive from God all that Christ is for us. Mighty Savior and Rock, Redeemer and Sin Forgiver. He is the sin forgiver because he is the sin bearer. In verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he, God, will tear them down and build them up no more. The wicked here refuse God. They don't love God. They don't want God. So what will be their end? Well, Jesus tells us in the parable of the wise and foolish builder, doesn't he, in Matthew 7. When you read the psalmist saying he will tear them down and build them up no more, it makes me think of the foolish builder who hears the words of Jesus, goes and builds otherwise. The storm comes and his house falls with a mighty crash. In other words, Jesus taught what the psalmist teaches. The Old and New Testaments are warning us and exhorting us about the same thing. This is one united book, an inspired work of God, so that from the divine author of Holy Scripture, we might see flee to God. He's the only refuge from righteous judgment. But they don't regard, which means more than just look at. You can imagine if you're driving down the road and you see something out your window and you say, yes, I regarded that field over there. I regarded that store over there. You can use the word regard to look at. It's kind of a weird way to use it. But it means more than that. It means to take into account and to weigh. They did not regard, the wicked that is, did not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. But what has the Lord done? The Psalms praise God for his works of creation and redemption. So I think we should start there. 
In Psalm 8, God has made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned them with glory and honor, and made them image bearers over and dominion havers over the works of his hands. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. There's more works of hands. So the first thing we can recognize is that mankind lives in creation and rejects creator. They live for the things of this world that are not God. They seek for their souls to be satisfied in creaturely things and pursuits that defy the Lord. Paul teaches this in Romans 1. That they have exchanged the glory of God for images, things to be worshipped and praised but as idols. In verse 5, they didn't regard the works of the Lord in creation nor in redemption. You see, David is in the promised land. A lot has happened in the history of Israel up to that point. Covenant words and promises have been given to patriarchs in Genesis. A redemption out of Egyptian bondage took place in Exodus. When the book of Joshua tells us of the Israelites' arrival in the promised land, there are Canaanites like Rahab who say, Word has come to us about what God did. And Rahab, as well as some others who will follow, are going to turn to the Lord and call upon God as their refuge and abandon their idolatry. Because it is clear that the God of the Israelites is the living God of heaven and earth. The wicked do not regard the works of the Lord in creation or redemption. It means nothing to them. They look at the world that has been made and they defy the Lord. They look at the works of redemption, not just in the history of Israel, but they hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. They don't regard it. In other words, they do not weigh it upon their life in a way that is meaningful and that brings change. They do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. When you look upon the cross, behold the work of Jesus' hands and feet. Look at the work of His hands. Look at what He's done upon the cross, bearing your sin and mine. To regard that would look like the following. Calling upon Christ for mercy and salvation. Because we recognize that the sin He bore are the sins of ours that we deserve judgment for. Sin deserves judgment. Christ dies for my sin, taking judgment in my place. What will regarding the works of those hands look like? Turning to Jesus. That's what it will look like. But the wicked, they hear the news and teachings of Christ They don't want Christ. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, what their end will be. It's what verse 5 here says. God will tear them down and build them up no more. There is an, let's call it an everlasting judgment. Build them up no more has that finality to it, right? We hear the ring of that. Build them up no more. It's not like, well, you know, there's still some of the basic materials. We'll try again next month and give that another go and start the reconstruction project. That's not what this says. God tearing them down. When God does this, He brings it down with such a demolishment of judgment that there is no hope for the wicked. He will tear them down and build them up no more. What we notice in the psalm so far in the first half, verses 1 and 2, He calls upon God for mercy. In verses 3 through 5, He says, Lord, You know the difference between those who are Yours and those who are not. So don't let me be drug off with the wicked. Because their future... 
will be what they deserve. They will reap what they have sown. Justice from you, righteous and holy justice, will be applied to them. You will tear them down and build them up no more. When the psalmist knows what the future is for the wicked, he wants no part of that path. His delight is in the law of God. And on his law, it meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He will stand in the assembly of the righteous. The wicked are like chaff. The psalmist says, I don't want that for my future with the wicked. I want you, God. I want to dwell in your sanctuary. I want to gaze upon your beauty. I want to be in the habitation of your house. That's what gives me joy and delight. I want you, God. There's nothing greater than God for God to give. In verses 6 to 8, he's going to praise the Lord together. In verses 6 to 8, blessed be the Lord. That's a phrase that's going to occur occasionally in the book of Psalms here on. This is the first time it occurs in the whole book. Other occasions to follow. Psalm 28, verse 6, blessed be the Lord, which is, which is a way of saying praise to God for something. Blessed be God on high. Let God be worshipped and exalted. Well, what, well, what's he got in mind? It's certainly enough to say, let God be exalted and praised, but it's always great to give reasons for it. And here's some. In verse 6, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. We have here the psalmist returning to the language of verses 1 and 2, right? In verses 1 and 2, he prayed that God would hear his cry for mercy, and now he's rejoicing that God is faithful to do so. You have heard me, O God. You've heard my pleas for mercy. So praise me to your name. In verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. What song? What about the one we're reading? I mean, the Psalms are songs. David, maybe he has another song in mind. But it could simply be what we call Psalm 28. This is his song. He is praising God and giving thanks to God because God has heard his plea. He has shown help and brought mercy. So he says, the Lord is my strength. The opening of that line in verse 7, the Lord is my... Well, we've heard things like that. There have been verses starting that way. Earlier Psalms tell us things like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Or in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. And my salvation and the stronghold of my life. So the Lord is my... That's a great way to begin so that we can fill in metaphors and language that exalt the Lord's power in redeeming power and faithfulness. And here he says in verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. He's saying the source of what helps me. Where does my help come from? Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord. He's my strength. So my help comes from the Lord. He is the source of my strength to keep going and to look to Him. And my shield, He's my protector. He's my rock, my fortress, my defender. My shield and strength are words that denote those ideas. Why does the psalmist celebrate this? And how is it that God is this for His people? In Him my heart trusts. That's why. That's why right there. Don't miss How important that part of verse 7 is. In Him my heart trusts. How will we know God is our strength and our shield? If in our hearts we are trusting the Lord, we can count on the biblical promises of God being our strength and shield. He's not the strength and shield for some of His people. His people are those who trust Him. And for all those who trust Him, He's their strength and shield. In Him my heart trusts. 
What's the result? And I am helped. The help that I ultimately need is from God. So I'm going to trust God. I'm going to look to God. I'm going to call to God. And you know what God's going to do? He's not going to turn from me. Friend, go to God. He will not turn from you. Hope and trust in God. Look in your heart to Christ. Look to the cross and rejoice in the Savior. And call out to God for mercy. He will not turn His ear from you. That is the glory of the promises of these words. My heart exalts. One way you could translate that is, I am leaping on the inside. Leaping with joy. Exult means to feel exuberance and joy, delight in the heart. No matter what else is going on outside that is not this, he says inwardly, God is my strength and my shield, so I am delighting and leaping with that that is the truth. And with my song I give him thanks. What's the psalmist's life characterized by? Trust in God, verse 7. Rejoicing in God, verse 7. Thanksgiving to God, verse 7. Verse 7 gives us several helpful responses to what God has made known. The wicked don't regard the works of God, but the psalmist does. How do we know the psalmist has regarded God's works of creation and deliverance? His works of creation and redemption. Because the psalmist trusts God, exults in God, and lives with thankfulness to God. This is how we regard the works of the Lord. This is how we properly weigh them upon our hearts and minds. So he says in verse 8, The Lord is the strength of His people. And what I love about David's psalms is he, he gives us language that is both singular and plural. He gives us ideas to think of how our own walk with God in our individual hearts, as well as the corporate reality of the people of God, can be shaped and informed by these psalms. So David says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. But it's not like we say, oh, as the people of God, oh, how great would it be to be like David, to have a God like God being our strength and shield. He says, listen, in verse 8, he's not just mine. He is mine, but he's not just mine. He's ours. The Lord is the strength of His people. And His people are marked by trust in God, exulting in God, thanksgiving to God, praise to God. That's what the people of God do. And God is their strength. In verse 8. He is the saving refuge of His anointed one. Initially, an anointed one would be the, the king being David or his descendants, the uh, anointed one and set apart one who would be the ruler over Israel. Ultimately, Ultimately, the way we read verse 8 as Christians is that the saving refuge of his anointed one means the Messiah beyond David. Christ Jesus himself. The Lord is the strength of his people and the saving refuge of his anointed one. Think of it this way. The Lord Jesus faces suffering and conspiracy, murderous threats and false accusations, injustice on every side. He is rejected and delivered over to Jews and Gentiles to suffer and to be crucified. But the psalm says, God is the saving refuge of his Messiah. That's what anointed one means. He is the saving refuge of his Messiah. Which means that for the king from David's line who would come, there is a hope of deliverance and vindication. Jesus loved the psalms. And he taught his disciples in, Psalm, in Luke chapter 24 that the Psalms bear witness to him. One of the ways they bear witness to him is that he is the fulfillment of these Davidic hopes and promises that the refuge 
would be what the Messiah himself experiences, deliverance, saving refuge of his anointed, to use the language of verse 8. Think about those scenes with the disciples. He's teaching throughout the earthly ministry and he says things on occasion like, all right guys, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. And they listen to this, right? They listen to what's going to happen to the one who is the Christ in front of them. He's going to suffer. He's going to be afflicted. He's going to be killed. But then Jesus says, on the occasions where he brings up what his future experience would be, he says, but on the third day he will rise again. On the third day he will rise again. Now, I don't know if that part ever really weighed much on the disciples' minds. Peter was so alarmed by what Jesus predicted in terms of his own suffering and death that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, and then on and on it went, right? So you, you see the disciples with their, their limited understanding, not realizing perhaps what all the psalm's fulfillment would mean. In other words, the psalms don't say that the suffering king would have a life ending in death, but rather says that the saving refuge is God for his anointed. That the anointed one's refuge is God. In other words, if Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, but on the third day I'm going to rise again, it's because Jesus knows what all the Psalms teach and not just the ones about suffering. If the disciples say, well, Jesus, you're going to suffer and you're going to die. That just seems like such bad news. Jesus could rightly say to them, haven't you read the Psalms though? That God is the saving refuge of his anointed one. Don't worry, guys. On the third day, he will rise again. The Lord is the strength of his people, the saving refuge of his anointed. How do those two lines work together in verse 8? Well, the, the deliverance of the king means our deliverance. Jesus could say to the disciples, my deliverance means yours. God is the strength of his people, the saving refuge of his anointed. And so the closing prayer in verse 9 is, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. So wait, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the deliverance of the king in verse 8 or the deliverance of the people in verse 9? Well, of course, it's both. And the people are delivered through the deliverance of the king. If an ancient Near Eastern army stormed the gates of the promised land and overthrew the Davidic ruler, we could say that the fall of the king means the fall of the people. We, we could unite them, right, individually and corporately. So let's say on a, on a transposed scale of spiritual realities that the deliverance of the anointed one, the deliverance of the Messiah from death will mean our deliverance and hope as well. Union with Christ. God is the saving refuge of his anointed ones. So he says, and rightly, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. The heritage is not a non-personal referent. You could say that the heritage or the inheritance of the people of Israel included the promised land. That would be true. But not just the land for the land's sake. The people of God were to be fruitful and to multiply. And God would give them uh, a descendants that outnumbers the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And the heritage of God is his people. The inheritance which are the saints. When he says save your people, bless your heritage, he just said the same thing twice. Save your people, bless your heritage. That's what that means. Not two different ideas, one idea. 
Save your people, bless your heritage, and here's part of how God blesses and saves. Not just that we be brought into right standing with God, but that He care for, lead, and shepherd His people unendingly. In verse 9, be their shepherd and carry them forever. So this imagery turns from Yahweh as the one who's going to judge the wicked to the one who's going to care for his people unceasingly. Oh, indeed, the end for the wicked and the righteous are not the same. The wicked have no hope that Yahweh will shepherd them and carry them forever. They have turned from the Lord. Their only hope is to turn to God for mercy. He says for those who have trusted in God, those who are exulting in God, those who are praising the Lord, we are His people. He says, shepherd and carry them forever. Shepherding, of course, is that imagery that is so common in the ancient Near East of caring for sheep. To lead them to green pastures and still waters. Psalm 23 comes to mind, right? The shepherding imagery of earlier passages. It's folded into this as well. Be their shepherd. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. But not just mine. He's our shepherd and the Lord will shepherd us and care for us. In fact, we know that when there are faithful shepherds tending their sheep, they see situations in their flock that have to be remedied with special care. Because here, this imagery of carry them makes us think of the wounded and the wayward sheep. That would happen from time to time. The weak sheep and the sick sheep Those who were straying from the flock. The shepherd knows that sometimes in order to care for the sheep, I'm going to have to pick them up. I'm going to have to pick them up. Because on left to themselves, I mean left to themselves, what are they going to do? He says, be their shepherd and carry them forever. It's language that's reminiscent in Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Here's what I love about this in verse 9. God will not leave any of His people behind. This is such good news. He will carry them. He will lead them, shepherd them, and be faithful to them. He will not leave you. You will make it to where the shepherd is leading you. Yes, you will. You will not fall short. You will not stop short. You will make it to glory. If the shepherd has to carry you there, you will make it. The psalmist celebrated. Because God is this faithful shepherd. And we have a hope that need not waver in Him. The Lord knows who are His. At the final judgment in Matthew 25, when the Lord Jesus comes in the glory of His angels, He will separate sheep from goats. It's parabolic language. The righteous are the sheep and the unbelievers are the goats. The sheep, His people, are welcomed into everlasting life and joy and the wicked will reap eternal judgment because the wages of sin is death. What makes the difference? You're not going to look in any of these psalms out of all 150 and find the psalmist patting themselves on the back and thinking highly of their hearts before God as the basis for their right standing and justification. Instead, you're going to find the psalmist celebrating the goodness and grace of God and steadfast love that has come to them. What makes the difference is the mercy of God. So go to God and call out for mercy. Why wouldn't you? Do you not fear final judgment? 
Do you think so lightly of the holiness and righteousness of God that the allure and compelling nature of sin just seems more appealing and unattractive? Do you not see what that road ends to, ends with and ends at? A parable, Jesus tells in Luke 18, sets the scene. In Luke 18.9, the text says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that was the religious guy, and the other a tax collector. That guy would have been despised by everyone. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. God loves to answer. Let's pray.